walking into the kitchen, there's just nothing left. Everything is just destroyed. There's an old dishwasher here with a few dishes in it, a couple of coffee mugs still sitting in there, dishes on top, just completely wrecked in pieces. High roof tiles everywhere. House after house after house. One after another, completely, utterly destroyed and shelled. Trees are burned. Hey everyone. So they say that seeing is believing. I really get that. To be honest, until earlier this week, when I personally toured the scenes of the horrifying brutality committed by Hamas, there was still a part of me that was in denial. It's not that I doubted the occurrence of the events of October 7th. I knew that they had happened. But there was still part of me that wished it hadn't happened, hoping that it was some kind of collective nightmare that we would all wake up from. That blissful ignorance is gone now. What I witnessed during my army-escorted tour through Kibbutz Be'eri and Kibbutz Kfar Aza, where two of the worst massacres of October 7th occurred, will be etched in my mind forever. In a way, I wish I hadn't walked through those destroyed villages. The images are haunting me. But before I could continue sharing these stories with you, I felt like I had to see Be'eri and Kfar Aza for myself. I needed to walk its once tranquil pathways and imagine what it looked like before the massacre. I had to witness the burnt houses, bullet-ridden vehicles, and blood-stained streets for myself. In the upcoming episodes, the focus will be on Kibbutz Be'eri, a once idyllic community in Israel's western Negev region. We'll hear from the children of Be'eri who witnessed things that no children should ever see and lost family members in the pogrom. We'll hear from a father as he shares his experience of his 16-year-old son being taken captive by Hamas from their inaccurately termed safe room. We'll explore a luxury Dead Sea resort where nearly a thousand of the Be'eri refugees now reside, at least temporarily. But today, I'll take you right there for a few minutes because I believe it's essential, though I understand it may be difficult to hear. I'll play some of my recorded tape, sharing my impressions and what I saw when the army attaché led us through the villages. Much of what I saw and heard is incredibly difficult to share, and I want to warn you in advance that this episode won't be easy to hear. The hardest part to listen to will be at the very end, and I will give you a warning beforehand in case anyone wants to stop listening at that point. However, I encourage you to remember the powerful words of Elie Wiesel. When you listen to a witness, you become a witness. That's Shlomi, the IDF commander who led us through the pathways and courtyards of Be'eri and Kfar Aza. 
Up until October 7th, Be'eri was known as an ideal place to raise a family. The sunsets were breathtaking, the fields lush and green. It was a vacation spot that attracted visitors from all over Israel. There was a running joke in Be'eri that the only reason the kibbutz was so close to the Gaza Strip was that otherwise it would be just too perfect. In this once affluent and tranquil community of 1,200 residents, 89 individuals were murdered and another 29 are in Hamas captivity in Gaza. Our tour with Shlomi started in Be'eri at the burnt-out home of Avshalom and Shoshan Haran, which sits just a few feet from the perimeter fence, about three miles from Gaza. In all these communities, the homes closest to the western fence facing Gaza were the first to be attacked and suffered the greatest losses. From these homes, many of the captives were taken and dragged into Gaza. Avshalom and Shoshan were celebrating the Simchat Torah holiday at their home together with their extended family on October 7th, when Hamas terrorists penetrated the kibbutz and began their frenzied massacre. All ten of them huddled together in their safe room. But when the terrorists threw burning tires into their home, it was only a matter of minutes before they had no choice but to open the window toward the outside. At that moment, the terrorists climbed on a chair and entered the room. Shlomi pointed to the chair that was still sitting there just outside the window. All ten of the family members were initially thought to be missing, including Shoshan, who was 67, and her husband, Av Shalom, who was 66. Also captured were their daughter, Adi, a 38-year-old psychologist, and her husband, Tal, and their two children, Yahel, who was three, and Neveh, who was eight. Neveh's aunt, Shaked, said about her eight-year-old nephew that he's an amazing child. He has such an open heart. He's just a sunny, bright boy who thinks the world is full of good. We're praying that in some way he manages to keep this point of view, that there is still good in the world. Avshalom's sister, Sharon Avigdori, a psychologist for those with special needs, and her 12-year-old daughter, Noam, were also taken. Ten days later, on October 17th, the family learned that Avshalom's remains had been found in the kibbutz and were identified. Shlomi invited us to enter what was left of their home. I hesitated, not sure that I could enter into that sacred space. But he motioned for us to enter and bear witness. Burnt out. Hundreds and hundreds of bullet holes everywhere. Absolutely destroyed in every way. Looking into the kitchen, there's just nothing left. Everything is just destroyed. There's an old dishwasher here with a few dishes in it, a couple of coffee mugs still sitting in there dishes on top just completely wrecked in pieces well, tile, roof tiles everywhere trees are burned a little further on we met up with a young soldier who looked like he couldn't have been much more than 18 or 19 Shlomi pulled him over and asked him to tell us his story he agreed but he asked that I not record it. His name is Doron. He's lived his whole life in Be'iri, and he was just drafted into the Golani Brigade, an infantry unit. 
He was at the Nova Musical Festival on Saturday morning, and when the terrorists entered the fairgrounds, he immediately got into his car and drove five minutes back to his home in Be'iri. Instantly upon arriving, he knew that they were in serious trouble. The guards at the gate were killed, and gunfire and RPGs could be heard everywhere. He took his army-issued rifle and entered a second-story balcony of a home in the center of the kibbutz. From there, he spent the next many hours engaged in constant gun battles with the terrorists. When he had run out of ammunition, he would run down, take the Kalashnikovs from the terrorists that he had killed, and run back up and continue fighting. He spoke without emotion, almost as if he was telling us about an action movie that he had just seen. But when he took out his phone and showed us a pile of dead terrorists that he had killed himself, we knew this wasn't fiction. After about an hour in Be'eri, we drove a few minutes up the road to the neighboring community of Kfar Aza. On October 7th, around 70 Hamas militants entered Kfar Aza, a kibbutz which is just less than two miles from the border with the Gaza Strip, and they massacred residents and abducted hostages. The kibbutz had over 700 residents prior to the attack, and it took two days for the Israeli Defense Forces to wrest back full control of the community. 52 residents of Kfar Aza have been confirmed dead, and a further 20 are missing. The attack has become notorious for the degree of brutality which took the form of beheading, dismemberment, and the victims being burned alive. Again, our guide, Shlomi, began our tour on the western side of the kibbutz, next to the fence where the invasion had began. He focused on the homes and the stories of three families. Roy and Smadar Edan lived in the home closest to the fence. Roy, a well-known Israeli photographer and journalist, actually sent up his drone and managed to document Hamas terrorists infiltrating his village using motorized paragliders before they murdered both him and his wife. Shlomi told us the story of the Edan family. Without any way of defending themselves against the terrorists, Roy thought his best option was to walk out and surrender. Terrorists killed him on the spot. His wife hid two of their three children, eight-year-old Michael and six-year-old Amalia, in a closet in their safe room. Terrorists entered the safe room and murdered their mother as the children hid silently in the closet and survived. But they had a younger sister, too, Avigail, who was three. She ran outside by herself and was seen by a neighbor, Avichai Brodetz. I'll tell you the rest of Avigail's story in a moment. Here's what I saw when I entered the home of Roy and Smadar Edan. Right now I'm walking into the home of Roy and Smadar Edan. This home is on the edge of the kibbutz. As we walk in, the number 419 is spray-painted outside of the house with the words in Hebrew, Zaka, which means that the uh, rescue team has been inside of this house 
and has cleared it of all remnants, remains, human remains. Um, outside the house, there are bullet holes. Walking in, everything is turned upside down. The chairs and the furniture in the living room have been destroyed. Um, it looks like there was a, a major struggle that took place in this room. I see children's toys lying on the floor, a small car that a child would ride on, some board games, and I'm turning in to the uh, safe room right now. And outside of the safe room, again, you can see bullet holes and signs of struggle. Walking into this, oh gosh, it's just, it's, it's really, this room has just been destroyed. Um, all the furniture is upside down. There are bullet holes everywhere. The walls have been cleaned. But this is the room where Smadar was murdered in front of her children. And again, I see toys. I see a stuffed unicorn and soccer ball and some puppets hanging on the wall. The window's open and I'm walking over to this small closet. Oh my God, this closet's so small. I don't know how these two children hid silently in this closet for hours and hours as the terrorists were going through this village. This is, um, this is really hard to be inside of here right now and uh, especially knowing what happened in here and knowing that these children have lost both their parents. I'm walking outside of the house right now. I can't be in here anymore. So what happened to their three-year-old daughter, Avigail? As I mentioned, she ran out of the home and was spotted by a neighbor, Avichai Brodetz. Avichai saw the young girl out his window and quickly ran out to grab her and bring her in to what he assumed could be the safety of their safe room. At that moment, Avichai ran to the kibbutz armory to grab a rifle to defend his family. But when he returned to his safe room, his wife, their two children, and the three-year-old Avigail were gone. He hasn't heard from them since that moment, and they've been confirmed to be in Hamas's captivity. As I record this, it seems that a deal has been reached to release 50 hostages over the next few days, mostly women and children. I hope Avigail will be among those released, but I think about what her life will be like without both of her parents. Again, Shlomi, our guide from the army, begged us to enter inside the home. chart out. A couple of old computer parts are lying here. Some old keyboards, but everything's destroyed. The drawers, the bedrooms, 100% wrecked and destroyed. What do you see there? What do you see in there, label? What's in that room? Children's toy stuff. Is it 
stuffed animal on the floor of a tiger and a little doll lying there with her eyes open, covered in soot. There's live rounds of ammunition on the floor. Some of these houses were burned after the families were murdered just for fun. Others where people were locked inside of the safe rooms and they couldn't get them out. They burned the houses in order to get them out. Some of them decided some of them decided to stay in and some and died of smoke and fire inhalation. Others opened the windows and left and were captured and brought into captivity for the most part or killed. And what do you what do you see when you walk through here? What do you what, what do you what do you, you could see how beautiful this was before? I mean, it's unbelievable. It's uh, unfathomable what uh, what went on here. There's one more home that I need to show you, Shlomi said. We all knew where he was going to take us, and none of us wanted to go. We turned the corner and walked a few more houses down. I saw the sign in Hebrew outside the door that said, The Kutz Family. This house had been locked by the army, preventing entry. And I was grateful, because I knew that if Shlomi forced us to enter this home, I would have had to have gone in and see what happened inside. The whole world knows the story of the Kutz family. Aviv, the father, 54, his wife, Livnat, 49, and their three children, Rotem, Yonatan, and Yiftach, ranging from ages 15 to 19, were murdered by Hamas terrorists in their home in Kfar Aza. An entire family was wiped out. After initially being assumed missing, Neighbors from the kibbutz found them together in a bed with the father, Aviv, providing a protective embrace around his family. The sun was starting to set. We all stood there silently, not sure where to go, how to move forward. As I think about it now, a week later, I still feel lost and in a daze. We look to our leader, Shlomi, silently asking him, now what? This towering Israeli soldier who would be inaccurately put in the box of being a secular Israeli motioned for us to follow him. He led us silently down the narrow paths, past burnt homes and more apocalyptical scenes toward a small building with the words, Beit Knesset Chemdat Avot Kfar Aza on the outside. He was leading us to the kibbutz synagogue. Of course, this was the only place we could go now. Shlomi understood that. We gathered in that small holy spot and began the afternoon prayers. As the leader recited the words of the mourner's Kaddish, and as we all cried and mourned in our own way, we knew that life would never really look the same again.
For those of you who have held on and are still listening, I want to thank you for taking this painful journey with me. Just as none of us that day wanted to enter those homes and look at pure evil in the face, but our guide knew that we needed to bear witness, you have also borne witness to what happened, and now you are witnesses. What follows now is the hardest part of this episode to listen to. Last week, I met an IDF reservist named Arki. Arki and his unit were the first team to re- respond in Kfar Aza and the neighboring village of Niroz. I asked Arki to share with us what he saw with his own eyes when he entered those homes. I decided not to edit his words, but just to record them and play them for a permanent document. But I'll warn you that it is disturbing and graphic, and if you think it's too much for you to hear, then I encourage you to end the podcast here. Here's Arky. So this is Arky Stamen. I am a soldier. Uh, right now, a reserve soldier, 32 years old, of three kids and a wife, a five-year-old, three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And um, I um, wanted to take this uh, this time to share with you guys my my uh, reflections about what happened in the beginning of this war, in the beginning of what happened to me, what happened to my unit, and to share this with you guys because it's... Uh, it's really crazy and we're going through insane times and to be able to get everything out, just to be able to speak it and to be able to have it recorded down and for you guys to listen to it, in a way it really helps me process everything that I saw and everything that we did and uh, hopefully it will also connect you guys to what's going on here in Israel. Um, I am in the 98th Brigade in a unit called Yechidat Srika or Yasar. Um, we're the body retrieval unit, so if anything happens to soldiers, our job is to make sure that the bodies come back to Israel, come back for a burial, the families get a burial. It doesn't matter what the um, what the status of the body is. Sometimes they're complete, sometimes they're not. We make sure to get everything back for a burial so that the family can have a burial, so that Hamas does not take, or any terrorist organization doesn't take the bodies and use them as bargaining chips. Um, God forbid, and so that the soldiers get a proper, um, <clears throat> a uh, proper send off for what they gave, which was their lives to the country. So that is our unit. Our unit is made up of all, uh, mostly all religious Jews who understand the mitzvah, the importance, the commandment of a Jewish burial, and understand uh, the importance of our mission, even if it means going under fire going in behind enemy lines that's what we do um i want to bring you guys back to the first few hours where i am in synagogue with my family um <laughs> and uh it's a holiday it's the simchat torah holiday lots of joy it's literally called being joyful over the torah uh, holiday, lots of joy, lots of simcha. And as I go into synagogue, they say the nearest bomb shelter is right down the street. And I say, that's a weird thing to announce in my town of Tekoa, which is not near any um, countries which or Gaza, which would have any type of rockets. So I thought that was very strange. And I started hearing booms outside. And then the rumors start. 
and the happy dancing, uh, suddenly all the songs turn into songs about peace and about war and about victory and the mode, the tone of synagogue changes completely and the rumors start going around. So um, I immediately run home, get my phone because I know that I'm in reserves and I know how important my job is. And I understand that if uh, Israel goes to war, uh, I could be called up. So I go home with my family, with my kids, tell them to get close to the bomb shelter, um, tell them what's happening, that there's a war going on. Some, so, some members of my family were at home, they hadn't heard. I go back to synagogue and uh, get the call get called up um you don't know if you're saying goodbye to your family for a day for a month for a year it's very strange you don't know if you're going straight into battle or what's happening and so hug the kids hug the family say goodbye get in the car even though it's a jewish holiday where we don't drive get in the car for obvious reasons for life-saving reasons we uh we keep shabbat by by driving (laughs) because we have to go save a life Uh, just like a doctor would. And I make my way to the base. Already that night, Saturday night, we have all our gear, we have our weapons, and we are going down in the Hummer towards a place called Kfar Aza, a place I had never heard of before. (coughs) Um, we, We know that it's serious. We don't know how serious. We know that it's going to be intense. We don't know how intense because you have to realize uh, when we get called up, it's only when things are bad, right? So we're already in our mindset of like, okay, you're going into a war zone where you're going to have to do unpleasant things. And you start mentally preparing because a big part of preventing PTSD and different things is to prepare for it beforehand and take deep breaths and uh, come into it ready. And as we go down, me and my friends start singing songs about God being in the most hidden places and more intense, soulful songs getting us prepared for the, for the holy work we're about to do. We get to the entrance of Kvar Aza where there is still fighting going on. There's shooting everywhere. They tell us it's an area that still has terrorists. And as we're driving, there's just burnt vehicles everywhere and you're driving down a road that it looks like out of a scary movie there's vehicles that are burnt on both sides there's bodies laying on the road still and as you're driving you think to yourself how many could there be two three four vehicles and we're driving for about five to ten miles and it's just vehicles after vehicles after vehicles some of them are look like they've been blown up by bombs some of them have bullets riddled in them there's car seats on the ground there's strollers on the floor and on the side and that's when you start getting an idea of the scale of this thing and we're driving for about five ten miles for about ten minutes and it's just cars after cars after cars after cars after with bodies and it's it's that's when it really like, oh my gosh, this is, this is insane. We, we, we generally train that we are in enemy territory. This is, this is part of Israel. And I remember seeing the signs of like Beersheba this way and Tel Aviv that way. And you're like, you're in your country. You're on your home turf. And it looks like and feels like you're at war. We get to the entrance of Kfar Aza. 
<clears throat> where lying on the ground is about um, 26, 26 bodies of some of them soldiers, some of them civilians. And we get there and there were two, three rabbis. <laughs> to this day, I feel like those three rabbis are like the angels that came to visit Avraham or something. Ah, Abraham, I, I don't know who they were, but they had been there all night. These three rabbis just processing these bodies. When I say processing, I mean putting them in bags, which is not easy. Cleaning them up, lifting them up, um, zipping up the bags. We're talking bodies that are not easy to move, that are very, very heavy, and um, a lot of blood. And the scenes, the scene is just terrible. There's army vehicles that have been exploded right around you. Um, and, and you're just beginning to understand, okay, um, what, what a big event this was. Now, at that time, I go into work mode, meaning there's no emotions. There's no, this is so sad. This just, you have a job to do, Arky. Start working. And we start processing the bodies and, and folding the arms and putting them into the bags and lifting up these body bags. And we had a truck with us that we thought would be enough but it wasn't even enough space. We had to pile them up one on top of another, like, like at a mass grave. And it was, um, it was very, very, very hard. It was very smelly. It was physically difficult. The smells were horrendous. The physical difficulty of lifting these bodies onto the truck over and over and over again. You're sweating. <clears throat> You're trying to make sure as little of what is coming off the bodies gets on you. And it's not uh, it's not an enjoyable uh, experience, and it's uh, a big a big mitzvah, and we're doing that for hours, lifting the bodies on, lifting the bodies on, get back, get them on the truck, and then have to lay them one on top of another. And even then, we needed two trucks because, you know, we're not used to such big numbers of people to have to process at a time, and um, we are driving back in the morning in our Hummer, where we're in a convoy on the highway towards the <laughs> army base in Israel that processes the bodies, gives the bodies a tahara, a ritual bath, and gets them ready for burial and brings the family in to say goodbye. And as we're driving, everybody's honking at us. Like, we support you, we love you, thank you soldiers. There's this feeling, I don't know who remembers after 9-11 of the patriotism and the unity. That's what it felt like. And people were just honking and showing us how much love they had for us. And they were, they were just so appreciative of us. And I remember thinking like, they don't even know that right next to them, they're driving next to the real heroes, 26 people who literally fought and died to save the Jewish nation and they're driving next to them honking and they have no idea what's in the trunk next to them which uh, the truck next to them which I know was was a weird feeling for me um, we had gone back to base and we were told that we're going back to Kfar Aza um, the next day the next day we get to Kfar Aza again it's still a war zone this time we go inside and um, it's still a war zone and there's Mortars falling and there's shooting and there's tanks firing, but our job is not to fight. Our job is just to um, collect the bodies and bring them back. And as we get there, the entire press was there, 
And it was the first time that the international press was allowed in. And, and, and there were about 150 of them. They all come in with their cameras and they're videoing. And we get into this community and we're surrounded by, unfortunately, bodies everywhere. Um, and we start dealing with them. And many of them were completely burnt. And in my head, Hashem protected me. God protected me. I really do believe that. I felt God there. He protected me because I didn't understand a thing that I was seeing. I was so naive and so dumb there that I couldn't even imagine what had happened there. Because if I had started imagining and replaying in my head what had happened there, I don't know if I would have been able to do the job. And there were some of our soldiers who actually stepped out and said, I can't do this. This is too much for me. And never, I never came back to the unit. And they are now doing, doing other things in the army. And um, so, for example, I see the burnt body in my head. The body was burnt afterwards. And I saw a woman with her underwear at her legs and her pants down at her feet, underwear down at her feet. And never in my mind did I even connect that with it's possible that these women were raped. Not possible. It's definite. And God protected me because I couldn't even imagine those things. I couldn't even think about them. And I'm just, we're dealing with these bodies and there's a body without a head. And even, and again, this headless man, I'm thinking to myself, they must have done it afterwards because my brain could not have even imagined the terrible atrocities. It was only weeks later. It took me weeks, weeks, till I was watching the, the Zaka members talk about what they saw because they were also next to us doing the job that we're doing very similar. And they started talking about the things that they saw and the stories that happened there. And I'm like, oh, that's what I saw too. And in a way... Hashem protected me. Hashem was Shomel. And God was protecting my mind and my mental health. Because the most dangerous thing other than the mortars falling is that you come out and you're never the same again. And I think that part of not understanding what was going on was something really helpful helpful for me to come out of this sane and healthy so far, please God, PTSD has late reactions. It's not necessarily something you see immediately. And so I pray to God and I do what I need to do in order to make sure that I come out of this normal. We're sp- we spend their hours, we are in houses that look like um, they, they had bombs that, that looked like they were from F-16s that just completely exploded houses where the only thing was left was the ashes on the ground and we're digging through the ashes to try and find bodies we found the bones of the remains of a child and we put um, that on a, on a stretcher and bagged it up as much as we could with shovels so anytime you guys hear oh there wasn't beheadings and oh there wasn't rape and prove to me that uh, kids were indiscriminately killed you don't need you don't need more than my word because I was there and I saw it and I touched it with my own hands and saw the death with my own eyes. The the um, reporters were getting in our way. There's literally a picture of me on CNN pushing a reporter away, trying to get them out of the way as we're bringing all the bodies onto the trucks. Um, 
the amount was unbelievable. We then had to go house to house in Kfar Aza, this beautiful pastoral kibbutz with green grass everywhere. And we're going house to house looking for bodies. And, and when you look for bodies, you have to be looking where they would be hiding. So you're looking under beds, you're looking in attics, you're looking in the fridge, you're looking in closets, anywhere where they could possibly be hiding. Um, there was one family we walked into and the house looked totally normal. It was like the couscous was still on the, was still on the, the, the gas. Like it was like a regular, regular day. And the house was totally normal and we walk in. And uh, this was a horror house, that's what they called it, because there was a whole entire family who had been murdered hugging in the safe room. And here's another example of God protecting me. I get into the house, and as I'm about to walk into the safe room, which had sights that most normal people would not be able to see and come out the same way, as we're going in, we see a terrorist, body of a terrorist, on the ground and in his hand is a grenade. Now, it's a dead body with a grenade in his hand. You don't know, has that grenade been, the, the, the uh, pin has been pulled, which means as soon as the hand lets go of the grenade, you have three seconds till it blows up. Or is this a grenade that, uh, that uh, is, is safe? You don't know, you're not in the bomb squad. You have no idea. So you automatically evacuate and bomb squad comes in and has to blow up the grenade and i was saved from seeing that family and what happened to them they were eventually evacuated by um by zaka by other other teams because it was it was uh too hard for us and i'm happy that i didn't have to see that <clears throat> faraza was a massacre this was not a terrorist attack it was a massacre of innocent people, you every house you go into, you see the doors that they had taken off the hinges, the Jews took off the hinges and put by the windows, so they were barricading themselves so that the terrorists couldn't get in. Didn't matter if it was males, females, women, men, children, indiscriminate as much as they could. Um, they were clearly houses that had been exploded. There were people whose head had been cut, heads had been cut off, and it was um, the worst thing you could possibly imagine, total hell. We finished the day of Kfar Aza, and I'm not going to go into everything else that we've done since then, but as we're going back to Kfar Aza, and this is what I want to finish with, 15 minutes outside of Kfar Aza, outside of this war zone with hell everywhere and bodies, 15 minutes you're driving home, driving back, and there's a gas station full of people grilling for the soldiers at a main junction in Israel and music and dancing and singing. And you're thinking to yourself, this is why I'm doing it. This is why I do everything that I do. And it's such extreme evil next to such extreme good. And you see it in front of your eyes, 20 minutes away from each other. And just to be able to experience both of those things right next to each other, it gives me so much core, so much strength to say, you can see the extreme evil. And then as you leave, you're like, this is the people 
that I'm doing this for. And you just realize how amazing it is. We sit there singing, religious people, Sephardim, Ashkenazim, secular, every type of Jew you can imagine in a circle, singing guitars, darbuka type of drums. And we're all singing, and guess the songs that they're singing? The same songs that we were singing on our way down to Kfar Aza. The same songs that prepped us to go into what we were doing. And it was such a, they call it a skirat ma'agal, full circle. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what the lessons I learned from this and, and what the lessons I am taking out from this. God sends miracles and protection in ways that sometimes aren't miraculous. <laughs> Does that make sense? You know, I don't have any stories of I happen to put on tzitzit or tefillin that day and the bullet bounced off or anything like that. I don't have any crazy stories like that. But the small stuff, he didn't let me understand the things that I wasn't supposed to understand. He didn't let me see the things I wasn't supposed to see. But I did what I was supposed to do. And, I, and the amount that I was supposed to do and what I was supposed to do there was exactly what I was able to handle. And I think that's a miracle in a way. It's one of the many <laughs> lessons I'm trying to get out of this. The, the clear lesson is that we are so justified. If any nation has ever been justified to go out into a war, any time in the history of the world, this might be the most justified war in the history of the world. And that's so ironic because this is the war that we have to explain to everybody why we're doing it. Um, so yeah, again, this is just a little bit of a reflection. Hope you got a little bit of an insight of what I went through the first days of the war. Again, we're in the middle of this war. I'm still waiting to go in again. We are, we are continuously going in. We're going in to get bodies of hostages that we have found. Um, and that might be for another, another time to talk about. So we're still working and we're in a weird place where we pray to God that we never have to work, but we also understand that if we do need to have to do our job, we're ready to do it. So continue praying for us, continue doing good deeds, continue being a light onto the people and, um, continue spreading the truth and the love because, uh, we're, we're here fighting the good fights that you guys can go about your day and be proud proud sources of light whether you're jewish be a proud source of life to the jewish people if you're not jewish be a proud source of light to the world this is israel take three and i'm david began help us to share these stories with the world by subscribing liking and sharing this podcast thank you ellie margolis for consulting and for logistical support and thank you adam margolis for this musical outro we will continue to share these stories as things unfold here in Israel.